0: Our gracious God, we thank you for your word, for the revelation of truth that it is to us. And we would ask now that you would send your spirit and make your spirit a guide to us and a teacher to instruct us in the truth, open our eyes and our hearts to it. We pray that in the light of your word we might see light and that you would that you would give us the illumination that we need to rightly obey your word. Give us understanding, we pray, and incline our hearts to you. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, if it seems as if it has been a long time since I've asked you to turn to the Gospel of John, that is only because it has been a long time since I've asked you to turn to the Gospel of John. So do that. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. It's been nine weeks since I said that. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Uh, Of course, not all of that was I off. We did do Psalm 73, the prosperity of the wicked, uh, in between John 12 and 13. But we're going to be picking back up again in this 13th chapter of John. Starting uh, really, what is a gospel. Did I just cut out there, a brand new section in John's Gospel. And by brand new, I just don't mean a new miracle or a new chapter, but really a section of John's Gospel that is entirely different than the first twelve chapters of this gospel. It is almost like we have turned a corner, as it were, and, and go into a, an entirely different style and, and an, an entirely different feel in John's gospel than the first twelve chapters. And as has been the custom since we started John, every once in a while it's necessary to step back and kind of get an overview of a larger passage of Scripture, maybe what is ahead. I've done that at the beginning of every chapter or the beginning of every kind of major break in the Gospel where we step back and kind of give you an overview. And so that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to give you an overview of chapters 13 through 17. We're not going to read all five of those chapters, but we are going to kind of cover them at 50,000 feet to get an idea of what is ahead. Uh these passages the, are not my favorite ones to preach. I prefer taking a little chunk of Scripture and really diving in deep and, and working our way through it slowly. But it's necessary, I think, to step back and get a bird's eye view of, of large passages of Scripture for a couple of different reasons. Uh, first of all, because it helps us to kind of get an idea of where we're going. Remember, the understanding of any given text is always determined by its context. And context is not only what we have already studied, but what we are going to study in the future. So as we work our way through, we need to keep in mind not just what we have already seen in a book or a passage, but also what lies ahead. And so the purpose of an overview is to give us some idea of what type of a text we're dealing with, sort of what we're going to be looking at over the course of the next several months. Uh, Second, it is helpful, I think, to put a lot of introductory and contextual remarks into one message. That way, as we work our way through the passages more slowly, I can kind of refer back to these without having to get on to rabbit trails and and uh give explanations to kind of put all the explanation to one message and that saves us time and when you go through the passages of scripture as slowly as we do anything that saves time is a good thing so we're in john chapter 13 and this is what is called the farewell discourse chapter 13 through 17 is the farewell discourse some of you may have heard this referred to as the upper room discourse it is named that because of the location that jesus began this discourse which was the upper room with his disciples at the final Passover meal that He celebrated with His disciples on the evening before His crucifixion. Uh, I have also heard it referred to as the farewell discourse, not just the upper room discourse, but the farewell discourse. And I prefer the term farewell discourse for this reason. The farewell, the title farewell discourse, really captures the tone and one of the main themes that runs all the way through chapters 13 through 17. You can call it the upper room discourse if you want. There's no sin in that. I've even called it the Upper Room Discourse, even recently. But the Farewell Discourse, I think that that really captures the whole tone and the, the sobriety of what Jesus is teaching in these final chapters. There are in John's Gospel seven miracles and seven discourses. And I've told you before, it would be to your benefit if you memorize the seven miracles and the seven discourses. And probably the best way to recapture the teaching of the first 12 chapters would be just to list and remind you of the seven miracles and the seven discourses. First, the seven miracles. In chapter 2, it's turning water into wine. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus healed the nobleman's son in Samaria. At the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus healed the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. In chapter 6, he fed 5,000 and walked on water. Those are two miracles, uh, back to back. In chapter 9, he healed the man born blind. And in chapter 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, those are the seven miracles. Likewise, there are seven discourses, and interestingly, most of these discourses sort of circulate around the miracle. Sometimes the discourse is an explanation of the miracle. Sometimes the miracle is an illustration of the discourse. And so they are kind of tied together. And the seven discourses are as follows. In chapter 3, we have the new birth discourse, Jesus and Nicodemus. Chapter 4, the living water discourse with the woman at the well. Chapter 5, the divine Son discourse. Chapter 6, the bread of life discourse. Chapter 8, the light of the world discourse. Chapter 10, the Good Shepherd Discourse. And now beginning in chapters 13 and going through chapter 17 is the Upper Room or the Farewell Discourse. And even though this discourse, which discourse is just a word that means an extended discussion or a time of teaching, though this discourse really doesn't start until the beginning of chapter 14 really or the end of chapter 13, for our purposes, we're just going to include all of chapter 13 since chapter 13 sets sets the scene, sets the tone, and kind of describes some of the events that surrounded this final of Jesus' discourses. So those are the seven miracles and the seven discourses. And when we get to chapter 13, we have reached really what we would have to say is a major transition in the Gospel of John. Major transition. Not just, okay, here's another chapter and another miracle, but something that has an entirely different flavor and an entirely different tone to it. And here are a couple of ways in which this is different. The first 12 chapters of John's Gospel, everything Jesus does, not everything, but most of what Jesus does is public. It is before the crowds. It is among the multitudes. It is before the religious leaders. People are watching. There are masses of people standing around. It is in the temple. It is surrounded by feasts. It is all very public. The only exceptions to that would be the conversation with Nicodemus, which was relatively private, the conversation with the woman at the well, which was private, and the miracle where he walked on water before only the disciples. But other than that, the first 12 chapters is all very public events, public miracles, public discourses, public discussions, and public interaction with the crowd. But then we get to the end of chapter 12, and we read in verse 36 that Jesus spoke these things, and then He went away and hid Himself from them. And so chapter 12 marks the end of Jesus' public ministry, and by the time we get to chapter 13, everything becomes private. The last nine verses, nine chapters of this gospel are all private settings, In chapter 13, Jesus is just with the twelve disciples. It's only Jesus and the twelve. Now that is incredibly private considering that He has just walked away from masses of people in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was filled with pilgrims. Massive crowds. But then chapter 13 is just a private conversation between Jesus and the disciples. A very, very intimate, very personal, very private setting, not public. And that Jesus and the twelve will soon become Jesus and the eleven... When Jesus identifies Jesus as the betrayer and then dismisses him, and then all of chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 is just Jesus and those eleven true believers. The second thing that marks the second half of this gospel as different is the the nature of Jesus' instruction and his teaching in the second half. Um, Oh, by the way, the second half of before I move on to that, the second half of the gospel, the only thing that is really public even in the second half of the gospel is the crucifixion. That was a public spectacle. But even the resurrection appearances and the trial and the arrest, all of that was relatively public. It wasn't done in front of the crowds. The crucifixion being the only thing in the last half of this gospel that is was really a public thing. The second thing that marks the second half of this chapter as significant or different than the first is the nature of Jesus' teaching. In the first half, the nature of Jesus' teaching mostly dealt with hostile people or make-believers, fake-believers, or unbelievers. And so most of what we get in the first 12 chapters is invitations to believe promises of what would happen if they were believed to believe appeals to believe commands to believe reasons to believe it is discourses and interactions with people hostile to Jesus or people who were his enemies or people who were planning his murder or people who were just rank unbelievers but in the second half of this gospel in these chapters 13 through 17 it is to believers and even with Judas gone the The chief, the the prime example of a fake believer, a false believer, is dismissed in chapter 12. And then what we have is teaching to believers. So in the first half, it is invitations to unbelievers. The second half, it is instructions to believers. The first half is geared to evangelizing the lost. The second half really geared to encouraging the found. So it's an entirely different sort of audience. And we need to keep that in mind as we work through chapters 13 through 17. We have to remember that. Jesus is no longer addressing crowds of hostile Jews. We've come to expect that in the first 12 chapters. Now in chapters 13 and following, it is an intimate intimate gathering with just His disciples, just true believers, and everything in these chapters needs to be interpreted in light of that. Chapter 13 begins with a time notation. Notice it, chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. There is a ton of information in those four verses. I mean, it's like John is just unloading theology in those first four verses. So the time notation is... Chapter 13, verse 1, this happened. This was happening before the Passover or around the Passover feast. So this is the last Passover in the life of Jesus. This then, this supper mentioned in verse 2, is the Passover supper. It is the final meal or what we would call the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. We read it in Matthew chapter 26, the details of that supper. This is that supper. So this is Thursday evening. Jesus being crucified on Friday, resting in the grave on Saturday, rising again on Sunday. There is nothing, having gone through sort of the chronology of the Gospels and the Gospel of John, I will tell you that is my position that there is nothing in all of the Gospels that in the least bit convinces me that Jesus was crucified on anything other than a Friday. There is nothing that indicates to me, at least, that the traditional understanding that Jesus had this supper on Thursday evening, was crucified on Friday, and rose on Sunday, that that should not be the way that we approach the text. Uh, I've read the articles arguing that Jesus was Crucified on Thursday. I've read some arguing he's crucified on Wednesday. Uh, they're not convincing to me at all. I think that the, the standard chronology is just fine. He's crucified on Friday. So this is Thursday evening, less than 24 hours before he would be crucified, and only a few hours away from his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, which would take place in chapter 18. As we've gone through John, we are covering a lot of material here quick. As we've gone through the Gospel of John, I have tried to sort of pull in details from Matthew, Mark, and Luke to fill in some of the gaps that John uh, leaves in his gospel that he was aware of and that those gaps shouldn't cause us uh, any, any angst at all. But there are details that Matthew and Mark and Luke all include in their gospels which kind of shade some of the understanding of what is happening here. So as we work our way through the last half of John's gospel, I'm going to try and tie in all of those other gospels to kind of give a chronology of the events as they unfold. When we get to the end of chapter 12, the public ministry of Jesus is over. No more address to the crowds, no more address to the religious leaders, nothing else done publicly. He, he gave his final appeal, he walked away from the crowds, he hid himself from them, which as you remember is an act of judgment upon them for their rank unbelief. They had so hated the light and turned from the light that now when Jesus walks away and hides the light from them, that is an act of judgment. And it's, it, that speaks volumes toward his attitude toward the nation of Israel and their rejection of the light. So now that the public ministry has come to an end, chapter 13 just sort of jumps ahead to that final uh, night with the disciples. And we may ask, what was going on around that? In the meantime, there's a gap there. Let me fill in a few of those details. From Matthew chapter 21 and 22, here are the things that happened during those final days of Jesus' life. At some point in there, and I don't know, know, this is Wednesday, Thursday, during the day, I, I don't know exactly. At some point during those last few days before John picks it up in chapter 13, here's what happened. Jesus was answered a series of diff- answered a series of difficult questions uh, from his hostile opponents. Do you remember some of them? Like, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Remember the scribes came and said if a man has a wife and she dies having no kids, Moses said that his next of kin is supposed to marry her and he dies and they go through that ridiculous scenario till all seven of them. Have- now whose wife is she going to be? Uh, who- Yeah, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Those are the type of questions. They were asking him questions to try and trip him up publicly so that they might have a reason to accuse him. They were looking for some reason to to arrest him, to bring him in, to accuse him, and to try him. Because remember, according to John, they have already decided that they are going to kill Jesus and Lazarus, if they can get their hands on Lazarus. But now they're just looking for a grounds by which they can bring accusations against him. So they asked him a series of very tough questions. They asked Him questions regarding the greatest commandment. And then at some point in John chapter 22, Jesus turned the whole situation around and He asked them a question that they couldn't answer. The Messiah, whose son is He? Is David's son? Yeah, He's David's son. Then why does David call Him Lord? And if David calls Him Lord, Him being His son, how then does David call Him Lord? How do you answer this? And they were caught in this quandary. They had no answer for it at all. And they asked Him questions regarding by whose authority do you say these things? And then Jesus Pulls it right back around on them again. Ask them a question that they can't answer. So we have all of that arguing and confrontation going on in those final days with the religious authorities that John doesn't mention. And then it kind of all comes to a climax, I think, in Matthew chapter 23 when Jesus gives there that that scathing rebuke of the Pharisees, you scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, and he, and he lambasts them for their hypocrisy and their self righteousness and their rejection of the light in Matthew chapter 23. Then in Mark chapter 12, it says that Jesus taught on the widow. He observed the widow putting in her last two coins. Jesus observed her and taught his disciples, using that as an object lesson. And then in Matthew 24 and 25, at some point, I think as Jesus is coming in probably on Thursday to observe this feast to Passover with his disciples, that is when the disciples observed the temple and gleaming from a distance in its beauty. And Jesus said, uh, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. And this whole thing will be brought down and destroyed as an act of judgment. And he gives What's called the Olivet Discourse. That's Matthew 24 and 25. Then in Matthew chapter 26, which we read today, Judas made a bargain with the religious leaders to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and then preparations were made for the Passover, and that brings us up to John chapter 13. Now they are in the place where they have prepared the Passover, and they are enjoying a Passover meal together. It's interesting to note the amount of text that John gives to this final discourse. Five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. 17 is a prayer but five full chapters really given to this discourse and the events that surround this discourse. And I think that's significant. Put that into perspective. John gives 12 chapters covering three years of Jesus' life, five chapters on only a couple of hours of teaching. What do you think that that says to us? That says to us that what what John does here is he zeroes in on one evening, a couple of hours of teaching, and this is so significant that he devotes uh, comparatively a large chunk of text to that final hours of teaching with Jesus, uh, with his disciples in that upper room. Now that is significant. That is a lot of text to cover, just only a couple of hours of time. So in John's mind and thus in ours, we should view this as a very significant, and it is a very significant discourse. Now let me give you an overview of some of the things that we're going to be covering here. First, I'll give you an overview of what's in each chapter. Chapter 13 has three main events, three main events. Think of them this way there is, first of all, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And that really sets the tone for the whole evening. Right? When your Master, your Lord, somebody that you have come to understand is the Christ, the Son of God, the Hosanna to the Highest, the, King of da- the Son of David the King, when He girds Himself and washes your feet, that really sets the tone for the whole evening. And not only for the whole evening, but also for the rest of the book of John. That servant heart, that sacrificial love would manifest itself not just at the final supper, but also in His death on the cross when He would not just wash their feet, but he would actually die in their place. The ultimate example of sacrifice and love. So it begins with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Then Jesus identified Judas as the betrayer and dismissed him from the group. That is the second main event. And then third, Jesus predicts at the end of chapter 13, Peter's denial before the rooster would crow three times. So those are the three main events. And then Jesus having washed their feet, dismissed Judas from the crowd, telling Peter, you can't stand on your own. Then we begin chapter 14, and there is 14, 15, and 16, which is the heart of the teaching of this discourse. And then when we get to chapter 17, it is a prayer. Chapter 17 is the perfect summation of the entire discourse, 13 through 16. It's the perfect summary of that entire discourse. It is also, I think arguably, and I think we're going to see this when we get to John chapter 17, the zenith of this book. And by zenith, I mean this. All of the themes, all of the teaching, All of the promises, all of the appeals and the invitations for the entire gospel are all summed up and tied together in that one prayer that Jesus utters to the Father on the night that he is betrayed. Right before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays the high priestly prayer. And all of the themes of the sovereignty of God, God giving a people to the Son, the Son dying for those people, saving them and securing them, all of those major theological themes are all tied together And summed up in that prayer. I think it is the, I think it is the peak of the themes in John's gospel. And of course, the resurrection, the crucifixion, the resurrection are the peak events, but the peak teaching is in John chapter 17 when Jesus prays for those who are his. He prays for us in that chapter. It's monumental. So that's an overview of it. One last thing before we sort of jump into some of the themes. As I give you that overview, do you notice that something is curiously missing? Maybe you noticed it. Something is curiously missing from the events in John's Gospel. There is no mention in this last half of the Gospel, there is no mention of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Have you noticed that? John doesn't mention it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all mention it, but John doesn't even mention it. Even though Catholics would argue, in John chapter 6, when Jesus speaks of eating His flesh and drinking His blood... Catholics would argue that's Jesus instituting communion. But we dealt with that in John 6. That's not what he's talking about in John 6. We get to John 13. We might expect that as John is giving us the details of this Last Supper, that he would include some teaching about the body and the blood of Christ and tying that in with Passover. But John doesn't mention it at all. Why is that? John gives us more detail, more text, devoted to that final evening in Jesus' life than all the other Gospel writers combined. But he doesn't mention the one thing that you and I typically think of as the central feature of that evening. He, he, he misses it entirely. Why is that? And ultimately, we can't answer the question why, because John doesn't say, this is why I'm not mentioning communion, because then he would be mentioning communion, right? So John doesn't say that, so we can't know why he skipped over it, but let me offer a couple of suggestions. First, I think John, and I think it can be proven, that John was aware of the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John wrote later than all three of those gospel writers. Not as late as some would suggest. I don't even think that John was written after 70 AD. But I do believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written before John was written. So John, I believe it can be shown from the gospel, was aware of what the other gospel writers included. He was aware of all three gospel accounts, and he knew their contents. And so John purposefully takes discourses and miracles and events from the life of Jesus that the other gospel writers did not mention for whatever reason, and he highlights those in his gospel. That's what, John, that's what makes John so unique. Second, not only being aware of that, it might be also that John knew of Paul's extended teaching on communion from First Corinthians chapter 11, because First Corinthians was written before the Gospel of John. So I think that John was aware of the teaching that was already there. Communion was already widely practiced, widely understood among Christians. There's no reason for him to mention it. But second, John seems to focus more on the teaching of that evening and the tone of that evening than he does on the specific events of that evening. The events that are mentioned in chapter 13 really only serve to set the stage. And the emphasis is on the teaching of chapters 14, 15, and 16. As Jesus goes through that, and if we read through that, you get the sense that the disciples were anxious. They were troubled and they were disturbed by what he said to them at the very beginning. I am leaving you and I am going to the Father. And the disciples were the disciples were anxious at best they did not know how to put this all together. We 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 crowned you king less than a week ago. Remember, we rode in on the donkey. We made you king. Everybody's hailing you as king. Now you're leaving us and you're going away to the Father. What does that mean? They were not able to put all of that together. So this whole tone, the whole the whole attitude and demeanor of this entire discourse is very solemn, very somber, very serious, and Jesus is dealing with that central issue. So... John really focuses on the teaching that surrounded that, not so much just the events. Now let's get into a couple of the themes. So your Bibles are open to John chapter 13. And normally at this point, I would read through the entire passage that I was going to give you an overview of. But Dave took far more time than he should have earlier, so we don't have time for that. So what I'm going to do is I'm I'm going to sort of crystallize what I think are five or six themes that are beautifully woven together in these five chapters. I mean, they're just... They they flow like threads through a, a beautiful tapestry or canvas, and and they kind of surface some of these themes once in every chapter as Jesus expounds upon them. So the first theme, the first theme is Jesus is leaving them, chapter 13. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna give you a theme, and we're gonna look at a couple examples. We work our way through, and then we'll jump back to the beginning of chapter 13. I'll give you another theme, and I'll show you how this threads throughout this this discourse. Chapter 13, Jesus was leaving them. Look at verse. Well, verse 1 sort of sets the whole tone for it. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come and that He would depart out of this world to the Father. That is the theme that really traces all the way through this. In every chapter, several times in every chapter, Jesus mentions that. He is going to constantly be telling them all the way through chapter 17, I'm leaving, I'm departing, I'm going to the Father. Don't panic, don't be anxious, don't worry. Here's what has been provided, here's what we're offering, here's what's going to happen. Rest assured, we got it all under control, the Father, the Spirit, and I... But I'm leaving and I'm departing, and so here's what you need to know. And this theme travels all the way through these chapters. Look at chapter 13, sorry, 14, verse 2. Even verses which are very familiar to us mention this. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, And you know the way where I am going. Look at chapter 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, uh, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and works greater, greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. And chapter four, uh, fifteen, verse twenty-six. Fifteen, verse twenty-six. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter sixteen, verses four and five. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asked me, where are you going? Look at chapter 16, verse 28. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. And then chapter 17, verses 11 and 12. Even in the prayer that Jesus prays for the disciples, this is mentioned. Chapter 17, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. So that's the main theme. And that's just a sampling, by the way, of the verses where Jesus mentions this. This is the shadow that overhangs this entire discourse. He's leaving. And he says it over and over and over again while he is mixing in all of the other essential teaching. He wants them to know the crucifixion, the arrest, none of this should take them by surprise because he is leaving and this was the Father's plan. A second major theme is that of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I mentioned to you a couple months back when we started the Gospel of John that the Gospel of John has more teaching about the Holy Spirit than all of the other three Gospels combined. When we get into chapters 14 through 16 and 17, That teaching on the Holy Spirit, Jesus just zeroes in on that. In light of the fact that he was leaving, Jesus lays out all of his doctrine regarding the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the One who is coming, and he is teaching them about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We sometimes think of John as being a book about the deity of Jesus. It is. Every chapter, every page, every argument, every miracle, every discourse describes his deity. But we also ought not to forget that it is not just the deity of Christ that John teaches about. It is John's teaching about the triune God. There is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first half of this book deals with mostly the interplay and in the relationship between the Father and the Son. But now we get into the second half and as Jesus is preparing to depart from His disciples, He is teaching them extensively about the Holy Spirit. It is a triune book. It's not just Jesus and the Father, but now we get the relationship of the Spirit brought into this, having understood how the First and second persons of the Trinity are related and they work together. Now we get the Spirit of God brought into this mix. And now we highlight the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a couple of examples. Chapter 14. Back to chapter 14, beginning of verse 16. I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Chapter uh, 14, verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So where's the Holy Spirit in that? How is, it that the, how is it that the Father and the Son make their abode with the believer? It is in the Helper whom he promised in verses 20, 16 and 17 of that chapter. So the promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit is a promise of the presence of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all in the life of a believer. Chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me and you will receive, you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. I keep misreading words. This is like a nightmare come true. And I'm not sure I keep looking underneath my glasses and then above my glasses. And I'm not sure if I need to get some new glasses. So I apologize for all the misreading. My, my eyes are not doing what they should be doing. All right. And then chapter 16, verses 5, beginning of verse 5, look at chapter 16. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative. But whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. That's a lot of teaching about the person of the Holy Spirit. There's also this another theme, a third one, is our relationship to the Father. And we've already seen that when Jesus promises that the Father and Jesus would come and make their abode with us. Turn to chapter 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. And this is a relationship with the Father. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Notice the intimacy of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then we are brought into that mix. There is an intimacy of relationship with uh, that the believer has with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 20, And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Chapter 15, verse 14. 15, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And look at verse 15 and 16. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you this I command that you love one another. And then there is our relationship to the world. Chapter 14, look at chapter 14, verse 30. Jesus talks about our relationship with the world, mostly because he was leaving the world and leaving the disciples, his church, his people in the world. Chapter 14, verse 30. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And then there is our relationship to each other. Chapter 13. Chapter 13, verses 34 to 36. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then chapter 17 and I'm just giving you a couple of these. I could give far more in each of these categories. Chapter 17, verse 22. The glory which you have given me. This Remember, this is Jesus praying to the Father. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And that prayer, as I said, even that paragraph right there, has all of the themes that we have just mentioned here. The disciples' relationship to the world, the relationship to the Father, relationship to the Holy Spirit, and then there is woven throughout this the last theme, And I'm not going to give you the verses uh, because we've already read most of them. And that is the theme of the truth. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Jesus promised He will teach you and lead you into all truth. John chapter 17, sanctify them in the truth. We are told by Jesus, if you love me, you will keep my words and obey the truth. So the truth is woven all the way through this. So that's a lot of themes. The Holy Spirit, our relationship to the Father, our relationship to the world, our relationship to each other, the theme of truth, all of that under the umbrella that Jesus was leaving and so this discourse serves as sort of his final marching orders to the disciples. It is serious. It is somber. It is no joking matter. These are the commands as he is getting ready to be arrested. And within minutes after the closing of his prayer to the Father, the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, a crowd would come into the Garden of Gethsemane and arrest him and take him away. But of course, if the disciples had been listening to and paying attention to everything he has said up to this point, it should not have taken him by surprise and they should not have been anxious over it at all but they were. I am so very grateful for this passage of Scripture, this discourse, because uh, it, it is unique to John. There, There is nothing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that covers any of this. This is unique to John. So I am grateful for the work of the Spirit of God in inspiring this in giving it to us and then for God for preserving this passage of Scripture. It is rich. Beginning next week, we will, Lord willing, jump back into chapter 13 and look at those first four verses. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we are thankful to You for the instructions that You give us in Your Word. You know us better than we know ourselves and and we're so grateful that You provide in Your Word and through Your Spirit and in Your church all that is necessary for those who are Yours who belong to You through faith in Your Son. We thank You for the truths of these chapters and we pray that Your blessing might rest upon our study of them. We look forward to being delighted and filled with joy as we look at the things that You have revealed to us in, in these pages we are so grateful that you have given them to us and preserved them for our benefit and our blessing and our instruction in righteousness. May you be glorified and, and steal these things in our hearts that we might give to you lives of worship and surrendered hearts filled with joy for all that you have given to us in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.